Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting new books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Edmund Levin on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, A Child of Christian Blood, Murder and Conspiracy in Tsarist Russia, the Bayless Blood Libel. Now, I think probably many of our listeners will think that the OJ trial was the trial of the century. Not true. The trial of the century happened re- very early on, and it was, in fact, the Bayless uh, case. I don't really exactly remember when the Dreyfus trial was. Do you remember, Edmund? Um, yeah, the Dreyfus trials were in the late 1890s. Yes, yeah, so they don't, count. Say, they don't count. I want to say thank you very much. Thank you very much for uh, for having me. By the way, yeah, uh, absolutely, and, uh, absolutely. I'm, totally I'm a big I'm a big fan, and uh, <laughs> it's great to be to be here. Yeah. So um, the driver's case was in the late 1890s, and the trials were not public. Oh yeah, so okay. they were behind so closed see, doors. So right. so really, even the driver's case is not competition for trials of the century in in, a, in the sense of a public. Trial. Right. So uh, on on uh, chronological grounds and on the grounds that it was not public, the Dreyfus case is out, and that leaves us with the Bayless case, which you've done a marvelous job of describing. It was a cause celebre at the time. Everybody knew about it all over the world because it was, I just want to use the word outrageous, what was going on, and yeah. people recognized it as such. Um, and, uh, and well, actually, it's, it's just very interesting in many ways, especially given what happened to Bayless after it was over. It's kind of a sad story. But so let me th- say uh, welcome to the show, Edmund. And could you, you. Uh, kick off the uh, interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, okay. Well, yeah, let tell you a little bit about myself. It was kind of a long and winding road to writing this, uh, writing this book. Um, I've had a long uh, interest in Russia. Um, uh, you know, I studied at the Harriman Institute of Magnates. I got a degree there. Um, and uh, know Russian uh, pretty well. Um, and uh, then I got into, I actually worked in television. I work in, at Good Morning America, uh, the ABC morning news program, as a writer and producer, and I've worked there for many, many years. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm basically in, you know, in, television, in television journalism. Uh, and then I uh, came to, to write, this, uh, write this book. Mm-hmm. How do, you, do you sleep? By the way, I mean, <laughs> um, writing you know, a book, you know. Sometimes I do. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes I do. Luckily, uh, I generally do not. A lot of people have to get up really early in the morning to do the show, but I don't. Uh, I usually work a kind of uh, like into ten or eleven at night, uh, and then I go into work in the afternoon. So I'm not one of the. I'm not one of those people who has to get up at three in the morning, right? right, uh, right. Which was kind of good for my writing schedule. Yeah, but to hold down a full time job and a and a job like that and write a book like this that. Uh, must have been difficult. I have to say, yeah, it was it was pretty difficult. You can ask my family. I, there's some of them in here, and I can put them on the line to complain. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was it required a, a, for me an unusual amount of discipline. Um, yes. I really had to get, get up in the morning and work on it, and go to work and come back and work on it. And I kind of wrote in a kind of kind of fever, and I'm not quite sure how I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, unfortunately, no. We're glad you so, did. It. But it's it's there. I have yeah. it in front of me. It's, I definitely did it. Yes. So it's uh, it's an object. Well, that's not, perfect. I have the object, not the not not the kilobytes of the Kindle edition, but mm-hmm. the actual book in front of me. So I know it's solid. It exists. Right. I've got it too. So tell us why you uh, wrote a book about the Bayless case. Why did I write a book about the Bayless case? Um, I wrote it. You know, I, I've always, you know, as a writer, I've written over the years. I've written you know, quite a few articles for publications like, you know, Slate and the Washington Post, etc., Atlantic, Atlantic Monthly. And like many writers, I have always wanted to write a book, and you know, um, uh, had that urge. And I thought it might be something about about Russia. Um, and uh, I was looking around for, and I sort of decided, at some point, you have to get going on writing some writing a book. I want to write a book. Um, I like narrative. I like the, the challenge of, of writing a narrative. And I, I, it actually goes back to my grandmother, uh, I, um, who grew up in Russia at the, uh, what is now the, what now Ukraine? <laughs> what maybe, maybe Russia someday, who knows? Again, but at point time, time was part of the Russian Empire. She grew up in the state in the, uh, early 20th century, late 19th century. And she would talk about the Bayless case. Um, 
Now, I, I should say the Bayless case, maybe some people, there may be some people out there who have not heard of it. Mendel Bayless was a man who was put on trial in 1913 for killing a child to obtain his blood, the so-called blood libel. And as he said, it was a huge cause celeb, famous all over the world. But we'll talk about that a little later. Um, so I came to write the book because I was thinking about a subject for a book, maybe somewhere at Russia. I know Russian pretty well, as I said. And my grandmother, I really first heard about, about it from my grandmother, Bluma. Um, and she would talk about, you know, all the horrors of Tsarist Russia, being a Jew in Tsarist Russia. And I remember one point she said, at the end of a round of stories around the dinner table, she said, and Mendel Bayless, <laughs> with a kind of look in her eye, is that that kind of summed it all up. You know, a Jew on trial for, you know, getting blood from a Christian child to make matzah, that kind of summed up all that was bad about Tsarist Russia. Um, so when, when I, uh, I said, oh, Bayless, okay, I know a little bit about it, but let me see what, what's out there. And I found that there are two things. One, I felt I mean, surprisingly little had been written about it. I read the two, there are only really two books, one in English by Maurice Samuel, which is a very good book, and one written in Russian um, uh, in the 1930s by a man named Alexander Tager, a very important book, had a lot of primary sources in it, um, written in the early 1930s, um, not really a book for, uh, for amateurs, uh, but had a lot of information in it, and I found it you know, fascinating and wondered, well, why isn't more written about this? Uh, uh, then... Uh, and, and I just say, in the academic literature, there is very little written. It's really a, it was a paper, uh, an article written, a great article written by the great historian Hans Rogger, uh, in some ways actually I think has not been surpassed written in the 1960s about the Bayless case. Um, wonderful article, but it's not a book that tells the whole story. So I decided I wanted to tell the story from beginning to end, uh, which really nobody had done based on primary sources. Uh, so... Uh, and I should say, I looked at the transcript now. The transcript is available. It's actually online. Um, and when I, you know, I read the two books, and then I looked at the transcript, and it is just the most amazing document. You know, there were very few, it's a unique document, because in Tsarist Russia, trials were generally not transcribed. Uh, the trial, was the 34-day trial, was transcribed as part of a private effort by uh, a uh, Russian newspaper, Kiev Screen Listen, Kiev Thought, or Kiev Opinion, as I translated in the book. Uh, and it's, I think, uh, 1,200 pages of double-spaced, dense text. And it's just like a, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to read. It's just, just, you can just come to it cold, but if you know a little bit about the case, I mean, it's like reading a Dostoevsky or a Gogol or a Dickensian, Dick, Dickensian novel. You know, there's just this, this, this parade of characters who just, you know, just grab me um, on a, on just on a gut level. Um, and so uh, I uh, decided, uh, and then I, then I looked, poked around further, and I found out that the Kiev State Archive, the Gosudarsnyakhiv Kiev Globalsky Gakho, had put out a couple of years ago through East New Press um, thousands of documents on microfilm about the case. Hmm. All the case files, all police reports. Um, so there was, a, there was a trove of material that it was important to me that it be available here because, well, I did go to Kiev and do research there, but it was important that it was accessible here because um, I didn't have all that much time to go. Uh, I, spent, you know, I spent some time there, but I couldn't spend months there in the library. So it was just great that all this material is out there, and, and no, one, no one had used it. Um, so um, uh, I just felt that this was a fascinating story, uh, and that uh, in itself, just as a narrative, and also, my bigger aim, I think, is that by telling the story, uh, it creates a kind of portrait of the era, of the time, of this fraught era in, in Russian history uh, that takes place between 1911 and 1913, uh, when everybody felt that something bad was going to happen. You know, as you probably know, as you know, our informed business know people, from the right to the left, they, they use these metaphors like we're living on the edge of a volcano. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody felt something was going to happen, bad was going to happen, and people felt that the Bayless case was, was part of that, uh, part of the sense of doom uh, of, 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 of that era. Um, so that's pretty much why I wrote the book. It is interesting that there are so few books on the Bayless case, and there are so many books on the Dreyfus Affair. 
I don't. I mean, there's a library full of books on the Dreyfus affair in English. Right. I actually. Right. I actually. I actually. Maybe I, I can just turn the table on you for a moment. Uh, <laughs> I. I actually. I, that still puzzles me, uh, and I. I don't understand why. I mean, I am not an academic historian. You know, I. And I. I uh, decided to take on this uh, this primary sources task, but I. It, it really mystifies me as to why there's not at least. One you, know, you could do a you know why an academic historian has not done a full book on on the Bales case. Uh, recently, Robert Weinberg of, of Swarthmore he did a collection of documents uh, I think he published last year on the Bales case and on the 100th anniversary of the case with a narrative um, kind of introduction to the section. But there's no book uh, uh, by there's not there's no book in, in in English. There's no book in Russian either mm-hmm. uh, on the Bales case using primary sources telling the story from beginning to end. Um, I really do find it um, find it, it it mystifying. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, I mean, I, I really can't can't I, I personally can't explain it except to say that uh, there are a lot more people that study France than study Russia. I think that's 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 true. But it was so important at the time. Um, there's actually, in general, kind of a, a, a one story point out. There's kind of a dearth of writing about the right wing, the, the Black Hundreds, mm-hmm. uh, dearth of academic writing on them at that uh, you know yeah, of yeah. that era. Um, so maybe it all kind of feeds into each other. It seems to be not much interest in the Black Hundreds, even though I think they're pretty important um, academically, and maybe that's part of it as, as well. Yeah. So let's get right into the material. First of all, uh, I want you to, if you can, explain what blood libel is specifically and the, a little bit about the history of blood libel claims. Okay, the blood libel. Okay, the blood libel is the idea um, that Jews uh, need the blood of Christians, uh, usually Christian children, although not always, uh, for some kind of ritual or sometimes medicinal purposes. There are various uh, versions. Um, the blood libel, you know, it's funny. We, we sometimes, what surprised me um, about, and, and I didn't know much about the history of the blood libel when I began writing the book, what surprises me, you know, surprises me is that you can, they can really, historians can really pinpoint, you know, how it developed and where it came from. You know, we sometimes talk about ancient hatreds and things like that as if they've always been there, you know. But this was an idea that was invented by, by people that did not exist at one point and existed suddenly at another point. And historians can trace the origins of the blood libel to England in uh, the mid-12th century. Um, the first uh, ritual um, uh, murder, accusation of ritual murder, um, was... Uh, recorded by a, a Welsh monk named Thomas of Monmouth about the murder of a Christian boy, William of Norwich. Uh, this is kind of a proto-blood uh, uh, libel. Uh, it wasn't quite the full story, but the basic idea was that uh, the Jews had killed this boy for ritual purposes. And then in the subsequent decades, um, the, uh, the ritual murder charge uh, became elaborated uh, into the version, kind of the the, the, the most standard version. Um, I should say, to move from England to the, to the continent of France and Germany, and the story became elaborated into the you could say the mainline version, which is that Jews kill Christian children, usually uh, young children, uh, to obtain their blood to make matzah. Uh, now that is the main version. There is a Purim version. Uh, which is another Jewish holiday, um, uh, an idea, the idea that Jews uh, bake it, uh, use blood to make hamantashen, which is the pastry, <laughs> pastry that Jews eat on Very, very on, tasty, uh, very tasty. Yeah, yeah tasty. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, there's a, there's a, and there are a lot of other weird ideas a, uh, that it was an idea that, that Jewish men menstruate and need blood mm-hmm. to replenish their energy. That's the weirder version. Um, but the matzah version... <laughs> became the main version, and that is indeed uh, the version uh, that uh, Bayless was tried on. Um, uh, let me see if I can say a little more about the blood libel, is that it, you know, it, it, it kind of came and went, it had a, it had a very, uh, it, it was most, most virulent probably between, I guess, the you know, mid-1300s to the mid-1500s, uh, then really faded in Western Europe, uh, was more common in Poland, but uh, until the late 19th century, uh, let's say between the mid-1500s and the late 1900s, there weren't too many cases in in uh, in Western Europe. Uh, in, in, in Western Europe, only really more common in in uh, in Eastern Europe, and not even that many cases in Russia 
Russia either. Mm-hmm. But the blood libel is just incredibly persistent. You know, you go on the Internet, it's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it has, it has not uh, died out. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's put this in religious context just very uh, quickly. Uh, and in religious context, that, with Jews, that means the uh, that means the the Jewish Bible and the uh, Talmud. And it's very clear that uh, all kinds of uh, 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 laws in Judaism, and that's what Judaism is about, say you can't do that <laughs> under any circumstances. Right. I mean, I mean, one of the one of the main prescriptions in in, in Judaism in you know, in, in halakhic as they call law is that uh, you cannot consume blood. I mean. All kinds of efforts are made with their kosher meat to drain yeah. the meat of blood. You cannot. I mean, that is, if you. I mean, it's often been pointed out. It, it, you know, you could not think of a more outrageous claim than to say the Jews drink blood because the law is so clear yeah. that you cannot do that. Yeah. Um, and not just human blood, but any blood. Blood is out. Any any blood, even yeah. your own blood. I know there are, yeah. there are very complex rules. Like I was looking in the you know Talmud and, and, and commentaries on it. You know, that, you know what happens if you cut your you know say cut your lip and and blood gets on something you're eating and there are all kinds. Of, I don't recall the exact rules, but I mean it, it shows that 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 there's a lot of tremendous consciousness about 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 consuming blood and avoiding it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a it is a strange charge. Mm-hmm. And another thing, I, I think I remember this that. Uh, even early on, and I don't know about the 12th century, but certainly by the early modern uh, era, uh, mainstream Christian authorities, including the Pope, were saying that uh, these accusations were ridiculous. Yeah, actually, from the very beginning, I believe in 1247, the uh, post-Pope Innocent IV, uh, the Popes uh, condemned the blood libel. Uh, the, the Catholic Church, I mean, there's kind of a strange contradiction here, I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, the blood libel emerged in Catholic Western Europe. Uh, there were no Protestants then. Um, and I think that even after the rise of Protestantism, it remained mainly a Catholic phenomenon with deeper roots in Catholic Europe than in Protestant Europe. Uh, but the popes, a uh, number of popes, uh, Innocent IV, I believe, was the first, then there were a number of others, condemned the blood libel. They said, you know, don't make this charge. Uh, so it was never officially... Uh, uh, vetted by officially um, promulgated by the by the Catholic Church or really by by any church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about its history in um, the Russian Empire. I, I like the part of the book where you say, "Well, there were there were blood libel cases, and the government reacted differently to them at different times." Yeah, I mean there were there were a number of uh, of blood libel cases in in Russia in the nineteenth century. Um, they uh, all of them, with one kind of, uh, with one exception, in the 1850s, that did not get very much closer to the time, uh, ended in in acquittals. But it wasn't, you know, we, we might tend to think, you know, I think, look, uh, that uh, well, you know, Russia, they're all a bunch of, you know, with very innocent at time. They didn't like Jews. Well, of course, you know, why wouldn't they uh, uh, accuse Jews of the blood libel? But really, c- cases were relatively uncommon, and until the Bayless case. They were local affairs, um, and uh, as we bring a great historian John uh, John Queer pointed out, historian of, of Jews in Russia, you know, the, the blood libel is a Western phenomenon, and in Russia it really had rather shallow roots, um, you know, in terms religiously. So there were there were blood libel cases. There was one in Saratov in the 1850s, having to do with a couple of uh, a couple of Jewish soldiers. Uh, there was one in, in Georgia in the 1870s. Um, there are a couple, a couple others, uh, but none of them uh, gained uh, the notoriety, <laughs> worldwide attention that the that the Bayless case did. Well, um, one, one interesting thing about uh, I'm laughing because, about when we think of Russia as this very anti-Semitic place, and maybe like it always has been, but actually it does have very shallow roots because there were no Jews in early modern Russia. Right, the Jews <laughs> came in. Uh, right, the Jews. There were no Jews. There were. Uh, they were. Uh, uh, you know more that there were two Dizers, right? Uh, but no Jews. Yeah, and, no Jews. So, and, and um, I bet you can still have anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, without without. Well, they Jews. did. They did. There's even a book about it. Uh, and uh, right. by a guy I know, and, and they did have anti-Semitism, right. but it was obviously it was extraordinarily abstract because right, abstract. <laughs> yeah. So they, they they needed real Jews. Putting somebody a Jew on trial, you need a real live Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. So, uh, anyway, I, I now I've, where are I lost my 
Right here. Where are well, where we were talking. We were talking about the blood libel cases that preceded the Bayless case. But let's jump right, right to right. the Bayless case. Right. Was it the was it the was it the was it the feeling among I guess the intelligentsia and the government, at least in Russia, that um, you know by 1913 that these things were just a thing of the past that they were over? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing that um, there, there had been actually. I mean, there were blood libel cases. The most recent one had been in Vilnius um, of a man named Blondus who uh, was eventually, through a very torturous process, he was acquitted. But, I mean, these cases were local affairs. Uh, and uh, there had, in Russia, I mean, the, the, what distinguished the Bayless case was that it was backed by the central government, mm-hmm. by the regime, unambiguously. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what distinguished it. And I think, yes, people, as I said, you know, I, I think that maybe you are more sophisticated, and we have a sophisticated audience here, um, you know, a lot of people think that, well, Russia, you know, as I said, anti-Semitic, there are a bunch of anti-Semites, you know, uh, they, they were inciting pogroms, you know, of course they put a Jew on trial for, for, for the blood libel, but you know, as people might know, it's a misconception uh, to think that uh, the regime, well, it was definitely anti-Semitic, there were 1,400 regulations regulating Jews, where they could live, what professions they could have, and it was a very anti-Semitic place, the most anti-Semitic place on earth, you could say, at the time. But the regime was not going around encouraging hatred or violence against Jews, quite the opposite, as, as you know, recent scholarship, really scholarship in the last you know, couple of decades has, has established pretty, pretty conclusively. So, um, you know, you, were, you asked, well, did people think this was a thing in the past? I think, I think the, thing, the, the answer to that is yes, is that uh, uh, to... Uh, kind of understand the Bayless case, especially if you are not a specialist and may kind of think you know something about the atmosphere of the time and how anti-Semitic it was, you need to kind of rid yourself of some of your preconceptions um, in that uh, uh, the state was not sponsored programs. They, the, the, at the time, the priority was the preservation of order, mm-hmm. and they did not want violence against Jews. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, people on the, uh, the most the progressive, even the most progressive of uh, virulent anti-proponents of the regime, were shocked that the state would put a Jew on trial uh, uh, on this ridiculous, uh, ridiculous charge. Um, so uh, uh, the um, uh, one of uh, Bales's uh, attorneys, uh, he became his attorney. His name was uh, you know, one of these forgotten figures, what I call you know the losers of Russian history who have been forgotten. Uh, 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 and, and that's actually part of the part of the what I part of my, what I like about the book is that you kind of learn about the losers who have been forgotten people, extraordinary people who, <laughs> whose stories are not not been told. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, and we tend to focus on the winners. Um, so uh, there's a man named Vasily Maklakov. He was a parliament member, a very brilliant man, one of Bell's attorneys, prominent member of the Cadet Party, and. Uh, you know, he said about the Bayless case, he said, this is a sign of, a, of, a, of an internal illness afflicting the state itself. I mean, this is someone who hated the regime, and he just could not believe this happened. Um, and he, uh, he saw this as a really bad sign that the regime was even worse uh, than, he, than he thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's get right into the, um, the case itself, and let's talk about the, uh, the victim here. Well, actually, there are a number of victims. Um, the right. person who was murdered, Andrei Yushinsky, that was his name, right? right. Did I remember that right? Andrei very right, perfect pronunciation, you got it. Yeah, okay, so Andrei, Andrei Yushinsky was killed. He was killed in 19, he was murdered in 1911 and found in like a right. culvert or something. And uh, so uh, t- take it from there. Yeah, let me let me take it. I, I think you know. I always say that you know. Remember talks about the the, the the case. I always like to remember talk about the victim. I think I think Andrei Yushinsky is important. I mean, in these blood libel cases, there is always a victim, a real victim. Uh, well, occasionally there were cases where there was no victim, but they kind of invented victim, and the body didn't even exist. But in most cases, there is a real victim, a real person, usually a child who was who was killed, and who never got justice because he or she. Uh, the blame, uh, the, the, the murder was blamed on an innocent Jew as opposed to finding the real killers. Um, so Andrei Yushinsky was a 13-year-old boy, um, poor, uh, abused at home uh, by his, uh, you know, he lived with a step-family. He was, he was illegitimate. Um, his mother managed to marry, marry a man, but she was very poorly treated. 
Um, and he was, but thanks to the help of, of an aunt, he uh, God was getting an education. He was studying to become a priest at the uh, at a religious school, and um, he uh, decided to play hooky one day and to visit a friend of his uh, uh, named uh, Zhenya Shibriak, who was the happened to be the son of a notorious gang leader in Kiev. And uh, he went to back to his old neighborhood of Lukyanovka, and uh, he uh, disappeared. Um, and uh, this was in the March of 1911. And a, uh, uh, a few days later, um, a uh, couple of gymnasium students were roaming around the outskirts of Kiev, rather disreputable place, where there were caves. And they were going on this kind of adventurous jaunt. And one of the boys uh, dared the other to go into the cave uh, to, uh, you know, to see what was in there. Now, you know, one was too afraid. One said he would go in. And uh, he found uh, Andre's body, which was covered with uh, about 50 stab wounds. There's uh, some dispute about the number. The official count was 47. Uh, could have been a little more, but um, he was horribly, had been horribly uh, murdered. So um, immediately, uh, you know, the hue and cry went up that uh, the Jews may have the Jews killed this boy. And the Black Hundreds, the right-wing movement of the time, the local chapter of, uh, I guess, called the Union of Russian People, uh, the Black Hundred Organization. It was called uh, the Double-Headed Eagle. That was the name of the organization. Uh, they began agitating that a Jew must have killed uh, this boy, uh, and they uh, actually distributed leaflets at Andre's funeral, uh, saying uh, that uh, excuse me, you know, that the Yids had killed them for their kill him for. Uh, for their, their, their Passover. Mm-hmm. Can, can, I ask, um, and, can, I, can I step in with a question right there? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, and that is that um, presumably there were lots of children that died in Kiev or were murdered in Kiev pretty regularly. I'm not saying that there were, you know, one every day, yeah, but sure. there were certainly multiple sure. ones every year. Did they do this every time a child got killed? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I, I cannot come, I, I did not come across uh, any murders that were ascribed uh, to uh-huh. uh, Jews. I, I, I think in keep around that time, there was a, there were a couple later after the Bell's case began where they uh, pointed to Jews as, as perpetrators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that the murder, uh, perhaps because of its grotesque, awful character, yeah. um, uh, may have given them, um, you know, given them the idea of. of, of of blaming this on the Jews. Yeah, and that makes a certain amount of sense because the body was mutilated and you, you, the, the, their minds might wander in that direction. So. Right. No, but, yeah, yeah, I think, okay, I go, think ahead, so. go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. So, um, so yeah, so, so uh, uh, you know, his body is found. There's this tremendous agitation uh, over, his, uh, over his murder. Uh, and then, and now this is in, 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 in March, and what I found interesting was the very indirect path uh, the case took uh, toward charging a Jew. Uh, the, the state uh, did not immediately decide to charge a Jew with a crime. And, and again, at this point uh, in Tsarist Russia, um, there was tremendous concern over not inciting any kind of disorder. And, you know, uh, that's the contradiction in this, because I think that I think historians have struggled with this. Uh, people have worked on it. Um, uh, Hans Rogger struggled with it, with, it, with this um, idea of, you know, I mean, the state at this point wants to tam things down. You know, you know after the 1905 revolution, there was enormous disorder. You know, by 1911 or so, 1910-11, things had quieted down. Uh, they wanted to keep things that way. So why you think that, Putting a Jew on trial and something which could incite violence, incite you know activity um, uh, that uh, could be really detrimental to the regime to its stability, you know why would they go and do that? I think that is the kind of the mystery of the Bayless case um, that I'm not sure anybody has quite solved. But what you can see in the record is the tremendous hesitance of the state uh, to charge uh, a Jew with a crime. Uh, at first, they let the invest, invest they, the state, um, I think in May or so, late April, May, uh, the justice minister sent one of his minions to Kiev to uh, look around and to uh, see what was going on with the investigation. A man named Le- Leada was his name, Alexander Leada. And 
Yeah, you can see from the record that he definitely pushed investigators in the direction of, at this early stage, of charging a Jew with a crime. He basically said, you know, find a Jew. However, uh, what's interesting is that several months after that point, the, the Senate government kind of laid off and let the investigators pursue the investigation the way they thought. And what's interesting is that not a single police official uh, thought a Jew had committed the crime. Uh, they, were, they first um, investigated the family, which is actually what you would normally do. You know, when you mm-hmm. see a crime like this, uh, abused child, stepfather, troubled right. home, you look at the family. Although they went way too far and arrested the family really with no good cause, and that did uh, their credibility a lot of damage. And that gave the uh, Black Hundreds trash to say, look, these guys are um, completely incompetent. Um, but then the state, but then the state, they brought in a guy named Nikolai Krasovsky, who was known at some point as Kiev Sherlock Holmes or Russia Sherlock Holmes, very uh, uh, canny, wily investigator. Uh, and they let him pursue the case pretty much the way he wanted. And, and, and he, he did not think that a Jew had committed the crime. So it took quite a few months, really until July, that's about four or five months, uh, for the state to decide to charge a Jew. And, you know, with, with all the hesitance, when they decided to charge a Jew, they really went, you know, full bull, pulled out all the stops, and um, uh, arrested uh, Mendel Bayless, this poor man, uh, for this crime. And maybe mm-hmm. uh, I'll say a little bit about him. Yeah, and say a little bit, but yes, actually tell us about Bayless, who seems like a pretty good yeah, guy. Yeah, so Mendel, Mendel Bayless... <laughs> Mendel Bayless, uh, uh, you know, what I, again, what I, I think is kind of valuable about the book is what I like about the story is, is, is its sweep. You know, you get um, from high to low, uh, you know, you get a, a portrait of different class of society. Uh, people, uh, uh, you get the, the, the Romanovs, uh, you get the, the officials in the government, um, you get um, poor people. Uh, like uh, Andrei Yashinsky. Um, and then there are people like, like Bayless, and, and he gives a little bit of a portrait uh, of what it's like to be a Jew at this time. Um, Bayless was uh, kind of a, an average, in a way you could call it Russian Jew. Russian Jew is a, is a term uh, that really came uh, about, and you didn't talk about Russian Jews, Rusty until the mid to late 19th century. The idea that you could be Russian and Jewish was kind of a new idea then. And uh, Bayless was a, a, Rus- a typical Russian Jew. He was born outside of Kiev, and he uh, came to Kiev to, um, uh, for a better life for his family. Uh, he worked in a, in a, uh, a brick factory uh, as a clerk and dispatcher. He had five children. Um, and he worked for a... Uh, the owner of the factory was a very rich man, and there were rich Jews then. Uh, uh, his name was Jonas Zeitzes. He was a beat sugar magnate. Uh, Kiev was something of a beet boomtown. It was based on sugar, sugar beets, sugar-backed securities. And uh, so Bayless worked in this uh, factory, um, which was interestingly, um, uh, the profits from the factory, it tells you a lot about the time. Uh, Zaitsev founded this factory um, to, uh, so the profits would go to support a charitable hospital for people of all faiths. And the hospital was interestingly founded in honor in the 1890s in honor of the marriage of Nicholas and Alexandra. Mm-hmm. And the idea was these Jewish grandees were trying to show they were loyal Russian Jews, loyal subjects of the Tsar. Um, so Bayless worked in the factory as a clerk and dispatcher, you know, worked all, all uh, you know, 14-hour days, uh, uh, parts of bricks would come by, he'd fill out the receipts. Uh, and he uh, also he served in the Russian army, uh, for about uh, five years, um, uh, you know, got an honorable discharge. And uh, so he was a loyal Russian Jew, and, you know, for his trouble, he was arrested in the middle of the night in July 1911 and put in jail for two and a half years, awaiting, in horrible conditions, um, awaiting, uh, awaiting uh, trial on this uh, insane charge. And I should say, now, why was Bayless, uh, why did they pick Bayless? Right. Only reason he was charged, there was no evidence, literally no evidence. You know, in some cases there is evidence, you know, but or some kind of evidence you can, or you can say, well, there's something there. There's absolutely no evidence. The only reason he was charged was that he was the Jew who lived closest to the scene of the crime. The brick factory, his office, home office, was a few hundred yards from the cave where Andre's body was found. And that was really the only reason 
he was charged as a as a as a suspect. He was really a poor fit. He was a very he was a proud Jew, but not a very religious one. He went to synagogue once a year. You know, we often talk about Jews here talk about how people are falling off on their observance, but you know, it was similar then. You know, he, he was he went for high holy days. Um, he worked on Saturday on the Sabbath. Um, uh, I said, you know, he certainly felt very Jewish, but was not a very observant Jew. Mm-hmm. Did not look like a Jew that you'd want to, um, if you were going to pick a perpetrator, he didn't, he didn't have payasses, he didn't look, right. uh, didn't dress in traditional Jewish garb. Right. So that's, uh, so that's, um, so they arrest uh, him. That's a little bit of Mendel Bayless. Right, they arrest him and they charge him. And, and uh, the, the charge, if I understand correctly, had to be approved from the very highest levels, right? Yeah, I mean, that is what distinguishes this case, um, is that it was it was backed at the very highest levels by the Justice uh, Minister, Ivan Shiglavita, and um, the uh, the Interior Minister, uh, Maklakov, who was, interestingly enough, a uh, the brother of one of Bayless' attorneys, which shows you the split in the society. Uh, so it had to be approved at the very highest levels, yes. It was guided and directed at the very highest levels. Why did they decide to do uh, this? I mean, do you have? Can you speculate? I, it just seems so uh, um, out of character with the regime at that time. And the regime, as you say, was still in shock after what had happened in in 1905. They were really hoping to avoid any kind of conflict, and, and you know, particularly in that area. But why? Why would they choose to do this? You know, I I think that uh, you know it, it still is a, a mystery, and I think that I know that Hans Rogger he actually. He wrote a, in his great historian, he wrote a book that I, I, I read in a picture that he wrote a full-length book about the Bell's case, but uh, destroyed the manuscript because he thought it didn't come up to his standards. <laughs> so clearly there's something about the case that confounds people. Um, uh, uh, I, I think that to me, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I a historian that was very kind of three parts of the book and comment on it, you know, he said he liked what I written, but he said, well, you know, you focus a little bit more on personalities than I would, you know, I guess as, as an academic historian, and I guess as a, a non-academic, I do focus on personalities. But I I hear, I see here, I think it may be uh, the right way to go. Um, I really think that it comes down, I mean, there are two ways you can look at it. I, mean, I, I would say, trying to use a parsimonious explanation, I, I think it comes down to the thought of Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas II was anti-Semitic. Of course, all of his ministers were probably anti-Semitic to some degree or another. Uh, he was more anti-Semitic than they were in a way that really shocks them. Um, there was, um, around this time, um, I think a year or two earlier, there was a, a plan, a project um, to uh, alleviate the burdens on Jews, alleviate these restrictive regulations. And... Um, uh, the uh, you know it was presented to, uh, uh, to to Nicholas, and he took several weeks or months to consider it. Um, and he came back and he said, uh, and these are rather minor alleviations, but he this is well well known in the you know, know well known in the histories. Uh, he came back and he said, uh, wrote that you know, uh, uh, you know his inner voice commanded him you know not to alleviate. The situation of the Jews, and you know, he said, "You know, his, his, my inner voice has never, and I believe the word never is is in italics, <laughs> is underlined. My inner voice has never uh, misled me." Oh boy! Uh, and his ministers <laughs> were really, really surprised. And I, in fact, which I believe which minister I think was uh, Kukup Sol, who later became prime minister. You know, he said he pointed to that as. As as a as a kind of a signpost, a signal that 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 he just was off the rails. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, one kind of you know theory is that uh, the you know, I mean we don't know his exact role. There are signs in the documents that he followed the case pretty closely because his his mark he marked up stuff that he read. And there's one document uh, where you know his mark is there when he, he would go through and he would. Put a, a, uh, a slanted line and flanked by two dots. So he was clearly reading about the case, reading documents and handle documents. Um, and my you know, basic theory is that his ministers felt this kind of thing would would please him. You know, they they this and, and indeed the way the case turned out, everybody was rewarded. You know, who was involved, even though the verdict, as we'll get to, was was mixed. Everybody was rewarded, so they were right. So I think basically they thought he he, he would like this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Hans uh, Rogger, you know, he uh, put it a little bit, and also Richard Workman, uh, you know, great historian, uh, put it a little differently, but along the same lines. Um, I mean, Rogger said that, uh, you know, as he was kind of grappling with this, he said that uh, you know, no purely rational explanation of the Bayless case, quote unquote, and he quote quote unquote, makes sense. You know, that there's really, that, that he, as he said, as he saw it as an attempt to, uh, uh, to supply ingredients for a missing faith. I mean, he was really reaching for a kind of non-rational, kind of unconscious explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, 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 you know, as he said, it takes a little bit of, as he said, it takes a little bit of imagination to think this way, and maybe historians aren't comfortable, most historians would be comfortable in kind of trying to get their heads in people's other people's heads in that way, but I think he he, he may be on, onto something because it's hard to find a rational explanation. As he said, you know, there was an attempt to kind of you know, the search for a principle to rally the forces of monarchism. Uh, not that they were saying, oh, we are going to, and this is what some historians will find that say they kind of simplify and say, well, yeah, they were trying to ra- rouse the rabble, you know, get people behind the regime, but they really weren't trying to rouse the rabble. You know, maybe they were kind of trying to buck themselves up. You know, mentally, as as well as uh, please the czar. Um, Richard Workman, you know, kind of playing off Roger, you know, he sees the case as a way for um, uh, the case as a way for you know, the czar. He saw Russia as a non-Western country, and even you know, wasn't so crazy about Peter the Great for putting Russia on the wrong path. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a kind of obsession with the 17th century, and um, uh, Workman, uh, you know, sees uh, this case as a way for, uh, for Nicholas and for the regime to define themselves as non-Western. You know, I mean, this is about the most, you know, this is a way to show, you know, we are following our own, our own, our own path. Um, so that, so there's no, I think, entirely satisfactory explanation. But one thing it does show is how far the regime is off the rails, I think. Yeah. I, I liked what you said about trying to show that they are not European, is the way I would put it. Um, yeah, not that Euro- makes a certain not, okay, Yeah, that makes a certain although, amount of sense to me. Right, not in your actually that's a better way of putting it. Although you could say the blah 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 comes from Europe, and we'll talk a little bit about that, about that later. Obviously, anti-Semitism was a European phenomenon, but I think that for Russians, um, the idea for the, the regime um, it was a way, you know, as Workman argued, it was a way of of, uh, of drawing a line between. You know, between Russia and and uh, and, and and Europe. Right. Um, I mean, I think the right context for this, in terms of Nicholas's perception, or one of the contexts, is uh, again the Dreyfus affair, which he of course remembered, and he saw what happened to the French authorities as a result of it. They were discredited in the eyes of of uh, right. world opinion, and he may have thought to himself, well, "That's really what we want." We want right. to be I mean, discredited yeah, I mean, I, I, in these people's yeah. eyes because we're not uh, like them. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think they're, they're you know, trying to show that uh, yeah, that, that's what we want. We want to be yeah, we want to be like the uh, like that. You know? Yeah, right. Um, hard to believe though that is you know. Uh, yeah, it was kind of an act of I mean, you know, it's an act of Russian. The case was an act of Russian. Self-definition. Well, you know, the Russians uh, are still doing things like this. I know just the other day Putin said that uh, there could no longer be any um, swearing on TV or in films. Right, right. right. <laughs> they're, 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 they're still doing it. And there are continuities. So, you know, whether, whether, whether unconsciously or probably unconsciously, you know, it was, it was a way of, you know, Showing that uh, Russia was following a non-European path, although yeah, later right. in the century the European path uh, kind of uh, took a turn, <laughs> yeah. took an anti-Semitic turn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's uh, let's follow uh, Bayless a little bit. So they throw him in jail, um, and then a long time transpires. Two years. What happens in that two years? Yeah. So I mean, again, it shows the the um, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, again, the the the, the, the kind of haphazard course I found really interesting. Uh, the case, the, the the state was still hesitant about charging him with uh, with the blood libel, and in, in the first indictment, they first they took the indictment came was handed down. He was arrested in July. The first indictment was handed out in July. Uh, he was in, in January, nineteen twelve. Several several months later, and it did not accuse him directly of of using um, 
of killing the child for Christian blood, although there were kind of hints in there. So it seemed at that point the state was thinking of trying him and kind of letting people read between the lines rather than explicitly charging him with a blood libel. Um, in fact, uh, the defense, you know, they moved, when they moved to drop a list of witnesses, they wanted experts in religion. And the judge said, well, this case isn't about religion. Uh, you know, I'm not going to let you call witnesses on, on the Jewish religion. Um, it, was only a, it was only a year later, more over a year later, with a second indictment, that the state explicitly made the charge that this was a ritual murder and really decided, essentially, to put the Jewish religion uh, on trial. So it took a very, uh, yeah, it took a long time. Uh, I think two reasons. One is that the, uh, the state was deciding how they were going to, what kind of charges they would bring. And the other is that there was kind of a, um, uh, a big uh, investigation in the press of the case that, that, that forced the uh, state to reassess the case and, and come up with a new line of, of attack. Mm-hmm. So while the uh, judicial authorities are um, honing their accusation, the investigative authorities are concluding that uh, Bayless didn't do it. Yeah, it's very clear <laughs> in, in, the, in the secret communications, no one believes he's guilty. I mean, I mean uh, the, the, uh, they believe uh, the, the most likely suspect was a woman named Vera Chibriak, who is an amazingly villainous character, uh, the most seductive villain you'll ever encounter. Um, and she was the head of a criminal gang, uh, as I think I said earlier. Uh, and her son, Xenia, uh, was uh, the victim, Andre Yashinsky's best friend. And the leading theory is that um, Andre was killed because he saw too much of what Vera and her gang uh, were doing. Uh, the state knew full well about this theory, uh, believed it was very possibly correct. And you see, you know, high officials corresponding with each other, you know, and there's absolutely no indication they think they're all guilty. It's all about, all about Vera Chibriak. And it really is, you know, kind of, kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. It's of it. So when they, uh, after they indict him and when they put him on trial, once the trial starts, could you enumerate just what sorts of uh, evidence that's in air quotes the uh, prosecutors adduced to show that Bayless did it? Yeah, the, the, um, there really was, uh, you know, strictly speaking, there was, was uh, no evidence. I mean, they had um, testimony of, you know, drunks who could barely make it to the witness stand, uh, you know, <laughs> criminals like Yurichibriyak, but I guess let me let me back up. There were there were, there were several cat. I mean, there was there was no physical evidence linking into the crime. Uh, so the state essentially relied on perjured, uh, perjured, bribed, bribed testimony um, and uh, expert testimony that was very dubious. So I'll just give you some of the highlights. I mean, one of the um, the expert the expert witness one of the expert witnesses was um, a man named Ivan Sikorsky. Uh, he was a very eminent psychiatrist, a really world-renowned, and his papers were cited. Uh, he's, his, his son, Igor Sikorsky, is better known. He was the inventor of the helicopter, yes. who eventually ended up in the United States. Um, but his, you know, his father was a very eminent guy. He was also a little senile. Um, and he fancied himself an expert on, on, uh, on the Jewish religion, on Jewish practices, and he labeled, he was, you could, we, today we would call him a psychological uh, profiler, um, I suppose, and he said that this crime was typical of the vendetta of the sons of Jacob, in other words, that the Jews yeah. uh, must have committed it. Um, uh, other witnesses, they had a pathologist who was uh, who, who testified that the wounds were uh, were inflicted to um, uh, drain blood, which was totally preposterous because they were <laughs> wanted to drain blood from somebody. He stabbed somebody 15, 15 times. As the defense expert pointed out, he'd open a vein. You know, one vein, maybe, not 50. Uh, so it was just, it was a very ineffective, you know, the blood was all over the place. There was no way to collect it. Uh, it was just, you know, it was a, a massacre. Uh, so this pathologist, though, he was, he was paid, he was literally bribed by the head, the, the, um, the chief of the National Department of Police, Stepan Bolevsky. Literally the guy, you know, was stuffing thousands of rubles into his pockets before he testified. Uh, so he was paid to say what the state wanted. Uh, and then there is, you know, Vera Chibriak, who's just this most amazing character. Uh, uh, you know, I love to see an actress play on the screen. I mean, just 
uh, a uh, uh, she uh, um, I said was the head of a criminal gang. She was a notorious figure in Lucana in this neighborhood. Uh, years earlier, she was married to a civil servant, had three children, but had this other life as a criminal. And a few years earlier, she had many lovers. And a few years earlier, and this is the kind of stuff you just can't make up, she had a French musician lover, and she blinded him with sulfuric acid <laughs> in some kind of lover's quarrel. He refused to testify against her. Uh, she was acquitted, and their acquaintanceship uh, continued after that. He, after after he was blinded, they called him the blind musician, mm-hmm. uh, and she would take him to uh, the, con- the French consulate to get his invalid's pension. Um, so uh, because of the fact she had uh, she had blinded him, and Zerzhibriak ended up as the star witness for the prosecution. So this absolute psychopathic psychopath. I mean, she's a, I guess the term is out of fashion, but I would call it criminally insane ended up at the star witness of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, she perjured herself, uh, claimed that her children had seen Bayless grab the boy, um, grab Andrei Shinsky, and drag him off. Um, and she got her young daughter to perjure herself on the stand and, and, and make up this story about seeing Bayless do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just speaking of personalities, and why I think maybe, you know, uh, the personalities are important, I, I think the fact that the state would conspire with a criminal sociopath, and you're talking about the highest officials, you're talking about the Minister of the Interior, the uh, Minister of Justice, the fact that they would conspire with a criminal sociopath, I think tells you a lot about the regime and how it works. And I think you read the book, and I hope you get a sense as I said, of kind of how the place worked, you know, and, and, and this is how it worked, and it really is uh, kind of astonishing. Mm-hmm. And they, they call an expert on blood libel, it's a Catholic priest, right? Do I recall this correctly? Yeah, the, the Right, the so-called uh, expert, expert quote-unquote, yeah. They, right. They could not find, interestingly enough, a reputable Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Yeah, I was going to ask about just that. Yeah, just why, why couldn't they, I mean, what did, the, what did the Orthodox Church say about all this, or did they say anything? Um, the Orthodox Church, as you know, Orthodox Church is very subservient to the, to, to the state uh, throughout its history. Um, they didn't have a whole lot to say. Uh, there weren't... Um, Orthodox priests, you know, pronouncing um, from, uh, you know, the pulpit. Um, and uh, uh, there were some articles that probably two people saw, uh, 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 which declared Bayless, in declaring Bayless to be, to be guilty in the religious publications, but really didn't play a big role uh, in the case. Um, there were a few theologians who actually came out um, in his text, but the church did not, did not play a big role. So, so, but anyway, they, they, they couldn't find, a, we have to assume that they would have loved to have had a yeah. Russian Orthodox theologian uh, testify that Jews, uh, you know, about the blood libel, but they couldn't find one, I want to assume. So they got this decrepit uh, Catholic priest in Tashkent, Justin Pernitis, who had written a number of pseudo-scholarly books about the Jews and their nefariousness. And um, he would actually, he was a very disreputable character. He had once um, been... Um, he had committed art fraud trying to uh, <laughs> pass off the painting as an old master. I was caught, and uh, he was not jailed, but he was exiled. I think Peter for Tashkent get him out of the way. Uh, and then he comes back because, uh, you know, he's the only guy they can find. Yeah. Uh, and he was just, you know, he was, the defense showed him to be entirely ignorant of Jewish texts. So his testimony was a fiasco. Mm-hmm. And then there was the testimony of, there were, really, there were drunks, there were a couple of, uh, uh, there a couple who, the state at first got to kind of implicate Bayless, but then they retracted their testimony and uh, uh, to their to their to their credit, and um, their testimony was also uh, a disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so who did uh, the, so who, who it was just a parade of drunks, lunatics, senile guys like Sikorsky. Uh, it was a case is just just you know a, a fiasco. Uh-huh. Who did the defense call? Um, the defense, you know, they, they called uh, uh, a number of people. Although, interestingly, the, the, uh, in the Russian court system, there were no strictly speaking witnesses of defense and prosecution. There were only witnesses for the state. Oh. You know, for the, for the, for, so uh, it was kind of very confusing and, and kind of disorganized. Uh, the, the state called a number of experts on the Jewish religion, uh, you know, Orthodox theologians. Um, uh, they uh, uh, called witnesses in Bales' defense. Um, very heroic man named uh, a shoemaker named Mikhail Nakhonechny, who um, uh, 
uh, who just pointed the finger at a, at a one of the one of the perjured witnesses, uh, perjured uh, witnesses against Bayless, and said he was lying. Very heroic, very really very uh, eloquent man, um, and a number of other people who uh, testified as to Bayless's uh, character. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- th- it's time to go to the jury. What? Um, who, who was the jury? Who was on the jury? The jury, okay, you know, the Russia, interestingly, you know, the Russia had, you know, the, the Russian justice system was probably the most best functioning part, most Western style part of the system. You know, it, it, the 1864 reforms created a, you know, a pretty good court system. Um, you know, they had, they had discovery procedures. They had, you know, you had to know what the witnesses were going to say pretty much before they took the stand. Um, and the, the jury, they had you know, 12 people in the jury. They were mostly peasants. Um, and it's clear that the state tried to keep off, uh, keep educated people off the stand. Uh, they seem to believe that peasants would be more easily manipulated. Um, although it's not clear why they thought that could be the case, um, given that I think that you know peasants were certainly wavering in their support of the regime. But uh, they appeared to believe that uneducated people would be a better bet. Uh, so there were about half the jury were peasants, and they had bowl haircuts. You can see the picture; they were wearing cap- peasant caftans. People remarked on that on the time, but they were amazed at how at the composition of the jury. So um, they were mostly peasants and a few civil uh, servants and people like that. And uh, do you know anything about their political leanings or anything like that? You know, we know very little about the jury uh, other than their verdict. Um, okay. uh, but we, 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 don't, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. So what was, um, the, what was the verdict? Well, the verdict... Um, the verdict, uh, Bayless, and there were two, the, the state, you know, hedged its bets. They realized how weak their case was. So there was a notorious, uh, double verdict. Uh, the first, the, the state, um, and it gets a little complicated and it's often mischaracterized. Uh, sometimes it said that the jury was asked to decide whether, uh, whether the murder of Andrei Yashinsky was the ritual murder. That is not quite true. Uh, the question was worded uh, to say, uh, was the murder committed in the manner the state says? At the brick factory, with a certain number of glasses of blood drained, a certain number of wounds, a certain number of places. And, you know, there, there was a broad hint in the wording that this was a crime committed for ritual purposes, but the word ritual uh, uh, or Jew was not used. Um, the second question was, did Bales commit the crime? Uh, so the verdict was split. Uh, the, the, the jury, on the first question, the jury said, yes, the crime was committed in the manner laid out uh, in the charge, in the manner the prosecution said. Uh, this was taken as a victory for the prosecution. People said, slightly inaccurately, that the jury had, had ruled that the crime was uh, a ritual murder. Uh, on the second count, uh, was Bayless guilty or innocent? The jury found he was not guilty. Hmm. Uh, and he was he was freed. Um, uh, interestingly, the in the Russian jury system, uh, a uh, it did not go by unanimous verdict. Uh, six six tie would go to the defendant. You know, uh, a, a majority whatever would go whichever way uh, the verdict went. So yeah, the the um, verdicts were decided by a majority. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least six jurors thought that Bayless was uh, not guilty. I guess one question I have, I'm not familiar with the Russian legal system at this time, really, but uh, I thought that in order to um, level a charge against somebody, and that would be a count, uh, yeah. there had to be somebody on the other end. So who, who the first uh, count, which is, was, it, was the murder um, accomplished in the way the state... Uh, said it was, is a count without an object. You are correct. And indeed, um, That's one, of the, one, of the hero, one of the heroes of the book, uh, of Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Nabokov's senior, who was Vladimir the novelist's father, who was a prominent cadet figure, uh, journalist, uh, editor of the newspaper, Rich or Stich, um, uh, who, who did some great reporting on the trial, he made this point. And, uh, and in fact, it was highly unusual, unpre- I, I believe unprecedented. Yeah, and, and and the the uh, uh, the the defense argued that just this is just this is just it's prejudicial. One thing it's prejudicial with a view toward whether Bales is innocent or guilty. You know, it, it once he set up the question that way, right? You know, uh, they were worried that it would prejudice uh, prejudice. I mean, again, you know, they were 
primarily thinking of the defendant, which is their job. So they argue it was prejudiced toward him, uh, and also simply in terms of justice, it just, it just, it's really not, not defensible. Um, it, 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 there was really no legal basis. But the judge, who was in the pocket of the state, um, he, you know, he approved this kind of hedging their bets, so at least they, may, they might win one out of two on the charge. Right, but then the implication and to claim, is... And to claim victory. The implication is, though, that the object of this count is the Jewish people. You know, I think that's an excellent way of putting it, and I think that people said, you know, they're putting the Jewish people on trial. Yeah. Even though the state, uh, you know, vociferously said, no, we're not saying all Jews are, are guilty, we're only saying uh, some fanatics are... are are, uh, right. uh, you know, do this terrible thing. But in fact, it was clear that the whole Jewish people were on trial. Yeah, right. Um, well, we're almost out of time, but I really want to uh, talk about what happens to Bayless after the trial, because it's, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting. So could you just briefly tell us what happens to Bayless and his family after I, the trial? I, 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 will, I, will briefly, I will briefly tell you about it. There's one point, important point that I didn't work in. Okay, I'll go ahead. Very briefly before I get to Bayless. I should say that the Bayless, we should, I don't want to pin all this on Russia. Because in the late 19th century, and we very brief, there were a bunch of blood libel trials in Western Europe, uh, in uh, in Hungary, in Prussia, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, and, and um, in Bohemia, and elsewhere. So, you know, there's a question as to whether the Bayless case is somehow connected to a wider uh, phenomenon in Europe, um, but I won't get into that at length. Um, but there were, you know, they were not backed. They were backed by local authorities, not by, uh, not by the central government. But there still were, at the end of the 19th century, there was this puzzling explosion uh, or mini explosion of blood libel trials and blood libel cases. There were a half dozen trials and a lot of accusations in the press and, and, uh, and against, against Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not only a Russian phenomenon. But uh, the Bayless case does stand out as being uh, you know, the last blood libel trial in Europe and... Uh, the only one really backed by the central government. But let me go on. Uh, let me answer your question about Bayless. What happened to Bayless? Bayless estate was, uh, you know, I wish it was a totally happy ending, but it really wasn't. Uh, he was acquitted. Uh, he uh, decided he wanted to stay in, in uh, stay where he was for a while. He said, I think, very bravely. I saw on a newspaper account. Um, he said, I'm going to, you know, he said, he said, I really want to take a rest, but I'm going to stay in here because I don't want to let the black hundreds to think I'm afraid. But after a few weeks, he decided it was just too dangerous for him to be there. And his family, they moved to Palestine, which he loved. He loved being in the land of Israel. He was, had been an urban person his whole life, uh, but loved being in the country. Um, but unfortunately, he had a hard time making a living. Um, it's a famous, as we know now, fame can destroy you. Uh, he rejected a lot of lucrative offers to lecture and go on the vaudeville circuit uh, out of a sense of honor. May have been a mistake because he had a, had a hard time making a living. World War One created chaos in Palestine, and eventually, he, and he moved to America uh, in, the, in 1922, I believe. Um, you know, was in one business or another. Didn't have a lot of success. Wrote his memoirs, which sold okay, um, and um, never quite found his footing in America. He didn't like the pace of America. He always longed to go back, actually, to to Israel. Um, and died in, he lived in the Bronx and uh, died, in, uh, died in 1934. Hmm. Uh, but a lot of people, 4,000 people, uh, turned out for his funeral. But mm-hmm. after that, he really was forgotten, as, as we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what happened to Mendel yeah, yeah. Is the Bayless case remembered in Russia today? Do people know about Yeah. It? I, I, I think that anybody, you know, uh, anybody, uh, you know, most Russians will know. Russians know who Mendel Bayless was, Russian Jews especially. Uh, here I find, you know, no one, very people have heard of it. Yeah. Uh, but, they, you know, it is remembered. There was a, a Hans anniversary. There was, you know, at the trial last year, there was, um, actually attended a conference in Kiev in last October uh, when things were much quieter, and uh, a conference on the Bayless case and uh, anti-Semitism, um, all kinds of big people like uh, former Ukrainian prime minister were there, oh. American ambassador, all saying, you know, the right things about Jews and how uh, prejudice is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Edmund, thank you so much for talking with us today about your book. Well, thank you. It's really a lot of fun. Let me conclude the interview by asking you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Um, well, as you pointed out, you know, writing a book with a full-time job is kind of hard <laughs> to do. Uh, 
I, I'm just like gearing myself up now to to maybe write something else, but I, I'm looking around. I have some ideas, but I'm looking around for a subject, so uh, I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's where I am now. Well, that's good. Not exactly just sure going is to work every place day. to be. Yeah, going to work every day is even a better place to be. So let me tell everybody that uh, we've been talking to Edmund Levin about his book, A Child of Christian Blood, Murder and Conspiracy in Tsarist Russia, The Bayless Blood Libel. Edmund, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much, and I hope you have a great week. <laughs>